Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, usually when our expectations are not met, it's a cause for disappointment, isn't it? And Emily Dickinson, I found this fantastic little poem this week when I was looking for an example of this, something that could bring us all to this point of feeling the same thing or remembering an experience like this. And it goes like this. It dropped so low in my regard, I heard it hit the ground and go to pieces on the stones at bottom of my mind. Yet blamed the fate that fractured less than I reviled myself for entertaining plated wares upon my silver shelf. And that probably bears reading again, but I'm not going to. What she's getting at here is one of the things that makes disappointment so painful is this sense of almost self-loathing that comes not so much from the disappointed hope or the disappointed expectation, but from the, like, I should have known better. What did I think was going to happen? If I had managed my expectations, if I had been more realistic, this wouldn't hurt so much. Next time, I'm going to be more guarded. But there are times when our expectations aren't met and it's to our relief, almost to our joy, when we're braced for impact, but instead of a blow, there's an embrace, and instead of harshness, there's tenderness and gentleness. What a relief. What an experience. It surges up inside of your heart, inside of your soul, and it's sweet because for so long, maybe, you've gone through life. Braced for impact, for the next disappointment. That's the situation that the Samaritan woman at the well was in when Jesus met her in our gospel lesson. And in the course of this brief conversation with Jesus, in the heat of the day, her life changed. Just like Jesus did for Nicodemus, Jesus pours out grace and love and tenderness He's compassionate to this person, and it turns the tide for her. It changes everything for her. And then we didn't read this, but she goes on. She runs into town and tells everybody, which is amazing because, as we'll see, she was at the well in the middle of the day to hide from everybody. But she goes and tells everyone who will listen about Jesus, this man, the Messiah has come. And just like Jesus did all of that for Nicodemus, and he did all of that for this woman at the well, we can expect that he'll do the same for us. When Jesus first approaches this woman and asks for a drink, she has a um, prickly response, doesn't she? She says, why are you, a Jew, asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Like, get your own water. It's kind of what it reads like. And we'd be helped here by understanding, or this is a reminder for you if you knew this already, there's tension, uh, racial tension, ethnic tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. At one point in the family history, there was a branch, a breaking point. And the Samaritans thought like they were the true Israel. They were the true nation of God, God's chosen people, his holy race. But the Jews, well, they had the same opinion. And the Jews happened to be more correct about that. The Samaritans were a 
uh, break. They were the ones who broke off. That's why Jesus later says salvation comes from the Jews, right? Because Jesus was a Jew. That's what he means. Salvation comes. I, the Messiah, am a Jew, not a Samaritan. But all that aside, Jesus did not really entertain that tension at all. He didn't make that a thing. He chose to just talk to her as a person. He chose to not let whatever bias or prejudice or whatever social norm or taboo get in the way of just talking to her. But the other thing that makes this kind of, uh, well, inappropriate or feel inappropriate such that she reacts like, why are you talking to me? Is because in that culture, and I think still today in cultures in the Middle East, single men and single women don't really interact in public unless you're like part of the same family, brothers or sisters or that kind of thing or cousins. But like an unattached man and an unattached woman Talking alone together was not very appropriate according to the social conventions. So to sum that all up, Jesus initiating this conversation, the way he did this, it kind of makes sense that this woman is like, what is happening here? First of all, why are you talking to me? Because you're a man and I'm a woman. Second of all, I'm a Samaritan and you're a Jew. This feels inappropriate. This feels like it's not going to go well for me and maybe also not for you too, but probably Jesus, because I'm the woman here, it's going to go worse for me than it is for you. That's just the reality. And that's not just a neat cultural historical fact about this story. That happens to you today too. And it happens to me today. Jesus finds us in these places where we're not expecting him, doesn't he? He finds us in the hallways of our school. He finds us in the dugout or in the grocery store. He finds us in a conversation with the cashier when we're shopping. He finds us when we're flipping through radio stations. He finds us when we are maybe about to watch something that we shouldn't be looking at. Or when we're about to make a choice to do something that we should not be doing. What are you doing here, Jesus? This isn't church. (laughs) Right? Sometimes we act like when we leave church, God can't see us anymore. As a pastor, people will sometimes apologize to me for using a certain kind of language. Oh, shoot, we're in church. Sorry, pastor. Like, like I get why you're feeling convicted about that, but like you got to think bigger. It's not just about being in church, right? God is everywhere. Jesus, what are you doing here? And then Jesus says to this woman, listen, if you knew the gift of God and you knew it is, and you knew who it is who is speaking to you, this whole thing would proceed very differently. Instead of saying, why are you talking to me? You would ask me and I would give you living water. And to this, the woman responds by challenging Jesus' ability to follow through, right? Because she doesn't know that he's the Messiah. She's just saying, listen, at first I thought this was inappropriate and, and, and like, Not okay, Jesus, but now I know you're just weird. This well, Jacob's well, for my research, was like 130 feet deep. And you can look at pictures of it taken from, oh, I don't know, expeditions to the Holy Land in the 20s and 30s. Um, And it's not like a a well like we have where it's just like dug and then finished and covered over and there's, you know, pipes and, right, there wasn't any plumbing. It's a hole in the ground was maybe a little bit built up around the side, but certainly not like the four feet of stones with cement, right? It's like literally just a hole that's 130 feet deep. 
And the woman says, uh, how are you going to draw living water? You, this is, you know, it's, it's not just like Jesus could just reach out and say, oh, here's some water. Here's some living water. This, this water is different because it touches me. Like, you know, you could probably shout down this thing and have it echo back at you seconds later. And once again, we're just the same. Jesus finds us. And we will say, we say things like this to Jesus. The circumstances are too desperate. I don't know how you, this is ever going to get resolved. The pain is too great. The problem is too hard to solve. The well is deep, Jesus, and you don't have a bucket. How are you going to help me? This is my life. Sometimes we say it as a joke. This is my life now. But, right, if we're braced for impact because we've been hurt and disappointed and we've learned not to expect any better, the well is deep and you don't have a bucket. And then something interesting happens at this point. Jesus, he somehow gets through to this woman, sort of. He says more about the living water and her mind is changed. She's like, yeah, okay, that starts to sound good. I still don't know how you're going to get it, but give it to me. She says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She doesn't want to have to come to the well anymore to get water. And definitely because, in part anyway, that was a chore that we don't really have much appreciation of because we can just walk over to a tap and open that thing and out comes water. But... Something else was going on here. Drawing water from a well was a woman's chore in this culture. And the norm was that you would go out. I mean, right? We have chores. You have morning chores. You have evening chores. They would go out and draw, draw water from the well in the morning to start the day. And then they would go out and get more in the evening. And one of the advantages to doing it that way was that it was cool. You didn't wear yourself out and give yourself heat exhaustion by trying to do it in the hottest part of the day. But here is this woman in the middle of the day. And Jesus, it says in the text, is tired out from his journey. He says, oh, I'm thirsty. Can I have a drink? And that's how this whole thing starts. And she's here, as was her routine, in the middle of the day, drawing water, doing her chores at a weird time. And another thing about this culture that is helpful in understanding this is the honor and shame around marital status for a woman in particular. Being married to a man of good standing was the desire and the norm, and that was like your cultural passport. Your, your social, you know, that's how you were seen, that's how you were regarded highly as a woman, as if you were married to a respected man. And if that husband died and there were no brothers of his to do the duty and marry you and to continue the line, then, well, now you're in a really tough situation. And anything else than being married to a well-respected man brought shame according to how far outside the norm you were. So, and it's not too different from today, really. So this woman is drawing water in the heat of the day so that she can be alone. 
what is going on with her? And we've heard the rest of that text, and so we know. But Jesus immediately drives the conversation toward it. They've gone back and forth a few times about the living water. First of all, why are you talking to me? Secondly, how are you going to get the water? Okay, actually, the more you talk about this, you know, you're never, I'm, I'd never be thirsty again. It would well up in me to a spring, to eternal life. That sounds great. Let's, let's make this happen. And Jesus says, okay, cool. Go get your husband and come back. And now she panics. Because she's caught in a catch-22. The reason that she's there alone is because she doesn't want to have to deal with people anymore. About the shame about having been married five times and now living with a man who's not her husband. But in order for her to, in her mind, not have to deal with this anymore, to never be thirsty again, to never have to come here and draw water and worry about what the other women are going to say, she's going to have to somehow disclose, like, I don't, there is no husband for me to go get. And so she tells this version of the truth, Jesus, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. I know you don't. In fact, I know you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. And we're going to pretty much stop in the text there. There's more that they say about worship and on this mountain and that mountain and spirit and truth. But that's at least one other separate sermon. So I'm not going to try to preach that now, too. This woman had carved out this avenue in her life so that she didn't have to be hurt again and again and again, that she didn't have to deal with shame. She didn't have to be faced with it. She could avoid the glares and the, and the what a shame and the like, where did things go wrong for her? How much of this was her fault? How much of this was something that other people did to her? Did anybody know the difference? Did anybody care about the difference? Or was it easier to just write her off as an outcast? Another thing that sadly, even 2,000 years later, still happens in our world. Jesus knew everything about this woman from the very beginning, and yet he still approached her. He didn't give her dirty looks, but his eyes were kind and gentle to her. He dignified her when he had all kinds of reasons not to. He dignified her with sincere conversation. He was gracious to her. He was patient with her prickliness and her concealing of the truth and trying to say a version of things that were true without just being honest about everything. He knew all of that. And he didn't get angry with her for not telling me the truth the first time. You know, I'm not mad because of what you did. I'm mad because you lied to me. Right? Who said that? I've said that. Jesus doesn't go there with her. And he doesn't go there with you. He doesn't go there with you. Jesus loved her. He was patient. He didn't recoil when he heard the details of her scandalous truth. Instead, he said, I'm here to fix all of this for you. I'm here to give you, you know, you're at this well in the middle of the day to get water. Sister, I have water that if you, if you say yes, if you accept this from me, you will never be thirsty again. I have something to give you that if you receive it, word and water combined is going to impart the Holy Spirit to you that is going to well up inside of you 
to eternal life. I am the Messiah that you're waiting for. And our Jesus doesn't change. He is just like that for us. He is just like that for us. The patience, gentleness, graciousness, and love that he extended to this unnamed woman, maybe we don't know her name for a reason. Maybe so that it's easier for us to identify with her. It's also extended to you. It's true, right, that the longer you live, the more acquainted with disappointment you are. There's this acronym, OWL, right? It stands for Older, Wiser, Lutheran. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but now that you do, now that you have, use it wisely, okay? The more life experience we have, the more we learn to manage our expectations, to not get our hopes up too much. It's just safer that way, right? But when it comes to Jesus, wherever he finds you in your life, you don't need to brace for impact. You're never going to come away from an encounter with your Lord who loves you and gave himself for you, thinking, I should not have expected so much from him. In fact, our problem is usually the opposite one. We don't expect enough from our Lord. Your Jesus will never be harsh with you. Your Jesus will never strike you or bruise you. Your Jesus will never crush you. In fact, he was the one who suffered harshness and beatings and being crushed and he, all that that he suffered, he didn't deserve that. You did. And I did. But he did it so that forever, all that you should expect from God is love and peace and gentleness. We heard in our Old Testament reading that the people grumbled because they said, is God with us or not? You let us out of Egypt and now we're going to die out here of thirst. And what did God tell Moses to do? You t- take that staff by which you worked my wonders and go and what? What does Moses have to do? He's supposed to, I'll ask one of the confirmants. Lara, since you're now apparently fascinated by something on the ceiling. <laughs> what did Moses do? What did he have to do with the staff? He had to strike the rock, and from it, water flowed. And that's a picture. We're going to sing during communion this hymn that you might know. Rock of ages, cleft for me, right? Jesus is the rock. Jesus was struck. And what flowed from our rock of ages is the cure for our sin. It's the foundation upon which our eternal hope is built. We never need to worry about being disappointed or hurt because God is harsher with us than we thought. He's not as compassionate with us as we thought he would be. No, he's always going to be kinder than you're ready for, more compassionate than you're ready for. He knows exactly what kind of pain you're in, He knows every detail of your most shameful secrets, and he loves you. He loves you, and he will never, ever stop loving you. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.